Well, if you haven't been with us for a while now, we've been in a consecutive expository series subtitled, Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. There are four Gospels. Well, Luke is the one that we're looking at, and he is the one that is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Our scripture picks up, having gone through the early stages and of the birth narratives of John and of Jesus, and now Jesus has been baptized by John in the Jordan and now begins preparing to begin his public ministry. But before that, there is one more very ominous, troubling part. After being baptized, look now at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. You can look on the screen or from your Bibles or your devices, but whatever way you view the Scriptures, remember these are the words of the living God. Hear them with careful appreciation. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon it. Father, once again, 
we look to you for light, illumination, and understanding. Father, that we might rightly comprehend your sacred word and what it speaks of your glorious and mighty son. Father, thank you for sending us the one who would take the fallen and help them stand again because of what he has done. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Last week, if you were here in the Luke's account, he goes back all the way in his lineage. Mary goes back all the way to Adam, the first son of God. Adam, all the way back, Luke takes us there. And Luke's intention, I believe, here now, that was not just to say, hey, it all goes all the way back to Adam. But he's beginning, I believe, to set something up. He's setting up a connection. He's coupling Adam and the first temptation. And now we're about to see the second Adam and another temptation. There's a parallel here that Luke is setting in place. In light of Genesis chapter 3, that's where he's pushing us to see. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Why? So we can understand the connection, the relationship, and the parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam and between the first temptation, which was a failure, and the second temptation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 3 depicts very clearly in our Bibles the fall of man. But Luke 4 describes the standing of man. The standing. The first man fell in his sins and transgressions, bringing all of us into that cesspool of guilt and condemnation. But Jesus, the second Adam, he comes to stand man again upright because he is that man that stands and opens the new and living way. Luke makes it very clear that Jesus was not just wandering around after being baptized by John trying to figure out what he's going to do. No, he was specifically driven into the wilderness of Judea by none other than the Holy Spirit, the one that had descended upon him like a dove as the Father gave that blessing. Now, I've got a little uh, slide here, I think. And um, this is the wilderness of Judea. Uh, That would be west, uh, up in the northwest corner. That would be going toward the west. This would have been the Judean wilderness. 
and all kind of heavy mountains, lots of ravines and valleys. And this area here would have been uh, in the southwest east corner. That would have been basically where Jericho is today. And uh, somewhere, somewhere in this mountain range is where in the Judean wilderness is where Jesus would have been wandering in that wilderness for 40 days, the text says. There he fasted for 40 days. Now, you know, you might think that's not possible. Uh, well, it, apparently it is. The first uh, four, five days, uh, incredibly difficult. But then pretty much plenty of stories. People can go on for weeks because that the hunger is just not there until you get to the 40th day. And that's when everything starts cannibalizing your system. And that's where Jesus was when somebody else came knocking. Somebody else was in that wilderness with him. He was not alone. The evil one was there to tempt Jesus, the second Adam. He got the first Adam, and it wasn't that hard. What will happen here? You see, interestingly, the word that Luke uses to denote Satan or the devil in our text in the ESV, the word to denote the devil is diabolos, dia, a cross. It's basically a cross thrower, one who throws a cross or throws out accusations. Now, where do we hear that? In history, all the way back, remember in the book of Job, when God said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan came before the Lord and basically what? Started throwing out accusations. Oh, he just serves you because you, do, you have everything so sweet for him. All this stuff that you've given him, you take that way. The accuser. Of the brethren he is called elsewhere. And that scene in the throne room is, is so depictive. Now, I believe this encounter with Satan, with the evil one, I believe that this encounter does not envision Jesus being engaged in a face-to-face -face physical conversation with Satan. Satan is, after all, what? He is a fallen angel. Demonic. But he's a spirit. And so this would not have been a physical conversation, if it will, but rather the devil's voice appears as a string of natural and reasonable things that are going on in Jesus's mind. Isn't that how we are tempted? You know, I don't know about you, but I hadn't had the devil jump up 
next to me and say, hey, I want to debate you about this about point of Christianity. Doubt you've had that either. Where do our temptations come from? They come into here. It's what we think. And there are things that can influence that. And Satan was doing what he could to influence the Son of Man to not accomplish his mission. You see, contrary to popular notions, I don't think Satan in many ways relished the encounter that he was about to have with Jesus. You know why? You may be thinking how he was just waiting, especially after Jesus had been 40 days without food, that he was just waiting, couldn't wait to show all his slick moves and getting Jesus to fail his mission. But contrary to that, up until now, it does make sense. Born in sin and shapen in iniquity, that's how the first Adam was and his bride and everybody else since then. We've actually been a pretty soft target to his evil, to his schemes. But Jesus was God in the flesh. And the evil one knew it. He knew it. He was not dealing with the first Adam. He was not dealing with some person like you and me that are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. No, he was dealing with this man, the anointed of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and absolutely without sin or any desire to sin. You see, I, I can sing that prone to wander really well because I do feel it. I know sometimes I'm being rebellious. I want my way, not his. I want my will, not his. Probably you do too, if you're honest. But you see, Jesus had no inclination to that. Now, now, there's a new guy on the playing field. And I don't think the evil one was just licking his chops. He was going to have to put on his best game because of who he was facing. Today, his outline for the temptation goes like this. A personal temptation, a powerful temptation, and a prideful temptation. Let's look at the first one. That's in verses 3 through 4. Kind of already set the stage in the, for the first two uh, verses. But a personal temptation is in verses 3 and 4. Now, let's try to, I'm going to try to just summarize real quick what these three events where Jesus has these three exchanges with Satan in the temptation. The first temptation shows that Faith prefers to wait for God than to deify its own need. Faith 
is willing to wait for God than to deify its own need. The, the focus here is necessity. Was it clear that Jesus was hungry and wanted and would have loved that bread that Satan was asking him to turn into stone? Absolutely. But was it absolutely necessary? Difficult? Yes. But no, it wasn't. You see, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, notice that question. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now think about it. On the surface, after all, turning useless stones into useful bread? What would be wrong with that? What in the world would be wrong with Jesus doing that? It's just satisfying a very natural normal need that human beings have. And he is a true human being. 100% God, 100% man. You see, Satan seems to be arguing something like this. Look, 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 Jesus. Your father knows how hungry you are. And on top of that, he puts you out in this thinking wilderness with no food. But you're the son of God. You're the son of God. You've got the power to take care of this need yourself. Boy, haven't we played that one so many times. How could that be wrong? See, that's what he was suggesting to Jesus. It's natural. We go around, it's natural. Can't be anything wrong with it. But Jesus knew that it was not a matter of food, but it was a matter of trust. It was about trust and faith in God. And dependence upon him rather than upon his cravings or his desires. However strong they might be. And Jesus responded to Satan's assault by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled you and let you, you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Truth be told, many of us love provisions more than we love God. I don't know if you want to admit that. I don't want to, but I will. That is true. Paul said something about it. Their belly becomes their God. 
And yet, Jesus was saying, essentially, to Satan. He was saying, it's better to starve. It's better to starve than to be fed apart from the living dependence on God. That is our very true bread and breath. And that's a, that's a rubber meets the road hard one there. But Jesus said, I'd rather take me out and let the buzzards find me than to turn away from my dependence on my father's provision. Secondly, a powerful temptation. That's in verses 5 through 8. Luke's second temptation accounts, uh, account shows that faith prefers worshiping the true God rather than ruling the whole world. Now, boy, do we have people in our time that want to rule the whole world. Everywhere you turn, various iterations of it by degrees, some little versions of it, some huge desires. And there are politicians that want to, will do anything to stay in that power grid and stay on top. But Jesus, Jesus preferred to worship his father more than any promise of the whole world. That was more centric in, to him. The focus in this temptation is, very importantly, immediacy. Immediacy, meaning it's an issue of how long can you wait for this? Selfish sinful desires, I got to have it, and I got to have it now. I got to be on top. I can't wait then. I can't wait the slow road. I've got to have it. But that was not Jesus' way. And he said, you therefore, if you worship before, I mean, Satan said to him, you therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. Now, you heard also earlier, Satan was telling him, look, I got all this, it's mine. He didn't tell how he got it exactly. But he does say, it's mine. I have, I have, there's been a time when Satan was able to deceive the nations. This is that time, still in that time. And so he said, hey, I've gratefully got this. All you've got to do, just... Just one little act of worship to me. And we can get this thing on just like this. And it's all yours instantly, already fully flushed out and filled out. You see, the truth is, though, the truth is, all the kingdoms of the world had already been promised to who? Jesus. The Messiah. He can't give what's already been promised. Psalm 2, 
8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. God is saying to his Messiah, and the ends of the earth your possession. Daniel 7, 14, listen. And to him, meaning the Son of Man, the Messiah, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So what's the point here? What the scriptures are saying are true. It's already been promised to the Messiah, but on God's terms and in God's timing. It has to be at God's agenda, not some kind of fast, shortcut way. You see, that's essentially what this temptation is. It is a shortcut, a promise of a shortcut. Satan was not offering anything Jesus was not going to already receive. But this appears to be a temptation to take the shortcut rather than God's agenda and its long road of obedience. You see, Satan proposes that Jesus can somehow skip the cross and go straight to the crown. And it can't be done. You've heard it in the old hymn. If you can't bear the cross, you can't wear the crown. Jesus knew that. Satan was suggesting that he get past, skip all the suffering, and avoid the cross. But Jesus also knew where that would lead. God's plan of salvation called for a great sacrifice by Jesus. And only then would his kingdom come and be built through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God. One heart at a time. One life at a time. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Trusting in Christ and believed and again, Jesus responded to Satan's assault by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord, your God, you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. He says, it's all about honoring him. No shortcuts. Going the way that he is set, even if it's a long and winding and painful road as it would be for the Messiah, for Jesus. Now, the, lastly, the prideful temptation, that's the verses 9 through 13. The final temptation, and by the way, Luke has flipped the order from the, than Matthew. It's it's. He has a reason, probably because of the Gentile influence and how, what they might have understood more clearly. So he flipped the order that you find different from Matthew. The final temptation shows that faith prefers to trust God rather than test God. Being, 
having faith in God and trusting Him, it is a matter of preferring to trust God than test Him. We might say the focus is on certainty here. Can we be sure of God's care? Can we really depend on Him when it really matters? Satan's third temptation transported Jesus to the pinnacle. That's talking about the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in the, at the temple. What part of the pinnacle? There are parts in which uh, the drop would be very high. If, you, if you've ever seen pictures of it, 150 feet plus. And then there, if, it, if it was a certain place where you'd be overlooking a, uh, down in the Kidron Valley, that would, that would be far, far we don't know for sure where it was, but it, the point is it was at the temple and on a very high ledge in the temple. And there it says, again, there's that if. If you are the Son of God, if you're really the real deal, Jesus, if you are, show that you can't be hurt because God's already got a backup system. There's angels that are going to keep and protect you. Throw yourself down from here. Go ahead. There's no harm. Can't hurt. Bible says. By the way, Jesus had first two times responded to him with quoting just scripture. Didn't get into a long argument with him but this time satan decides well maybe i should pull out the bible too and he does but of course he only pulls out part of it keeps one very important line that he doesn't give but the point is he's saying if you're the son of god throw yourself down because that passage in Psalm 91, 11 through 12, promises protection to the Son of God, to the Messiah. So Satan says, there's no, there's no fear here. There's no danger. Just you, you could really impress all these people. You could show them that you are the Son of God. You can be the one that will absolutely <coughs> never be questioned. Again, if you can do something like that, and then you get up and dust yourself off and say, here I am. <coughs> Remember, genuine faith doesn't need proof of God's attention. If you've got to have proof of God's attention, then you're not walking by faith. Walking by faith means you don't see all the pieces. You don't comprehend all the parts. It's not a step into walk into, into um, I kept thinking of the word, I just I had it right on my, my tongue. It's not a matter of that you can't, it's, it is being. Let me come back to, to, to where I should be on this. Remember, genuine faith doesn't need sensational proof of God's attention. To try 
to push God for proof of his protection or deliverance is a sign of weak or non-existent faith. It's a sign of weak faith. If we have to push God, if we have to say, God, you've got to give me a sign. I think I've told you guys uh, many, uh, uh, at least one time through the years that I had a friend uh, in my first year at the University of Alabama. And a lot of us, a bunch of us ate together. And this one particular girl, she... uh, basically decided to find out whether she should marry this guy based on her own version of a fleece. And a fleece, basically, the idea is you, that you've heard of the wet, wetted fleece, that, uh, and the idea that she would do this, and if, if, if everything came out the way she had depicted it in, her, in this scenario, that if he did such and such or at a certain time or whatever, if all those things were met, that would be God's assurance that he's the right guy for her to marry. Well, if you fast forward a few years, you would know that was not a good choice. That was a terribly stupid, foolish, foolish. It's not biblical, had no, no, she thought she was pulling something out of context and applying it in a wrong way. And ultimately, she has lived with the consequences of that foolishness. And see here, that you don't see this kind of thing happening by, by Jesus. It shouldn't happen by us. It should not be that we respond to God for a guarantee or a proof. But rather, we Trust again and wait upon him. By the way, it would be foolish to presume on God's goodness to overcome the laws of nature, (laughs) like gravity. If someone says, I trust God, and I'm going to prove it, I'm going to walk up uh, on top of, uh, you know, what's the uh, tallest thing we got here, Uh, you know, someplace like the Empire State Building, and I'm going to throw myself off to prove that I trust God. Well, that was, that's just lunacy. That's idiocy. That's not trust. Because we already know God has put into this world a law called gravity. And faith never calls you to basically ignore that. Again, Jesus quoted the scriptures. Deuteronomy six sixteen: You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's saying, Satan, I know what you're doing. You're you're trying to bait me to take this so that I can impress a bunch of people. And again, another way I can get off of my father's plan. He said, I'm not buying it. Again, finally, Satan gives up for now. It says, after being tempted, and it implied multiple temptations, says in chapter 3, and when the devil had, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, 
he departed from him until an opportune time. Did you hear that? He didn't say, okay, I'm done. I guess, no, no. He's too prideful. He's too proud. He was stumped three times, but he's not through. He will come back again. Either in a direct way, down in Luke 22, or in many other ways, using minions, using others under his influence, he would come. You see, the first battle was won by the Lord Jesus. Critical beginning. But as we will see, there are many more battles to come. Stay tuned. Amen. Father, we too, you know, face many temptations. None like your son. None in that kind of condition and circumstance or with such consequence. But Father, help us to be able to follow, look to continue to hold fast to your word and hold fast to the help of the Holy Spirit. Those two things, Lord, are help your people in any time, in any circumstance, and they are always at our disposal. Father, help us not to live as if we are alone or presume upon your goodness, but Father, to with faith and faithfulness trust you and not run before you, but wait upon you. Give us strength and deliver us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.